Now, as you, the outline is relatively brief for this session. It's called The Practical Impact of the Cross. There are two remaining sections in Galatians. I also want to allude to Romans 6, and so I included that. And then, as time allows, at the end, I want to talk about the impact of the cross of Christ on two disciples of the Lord, not one of the twelve, but the two secret disciples who became not secret. When the ones who had been open disciples were hiding, the ones who had been hidden disciples are now in the open. And that's kind of interesting. And we ask, why is that? And I think the solution is that they spent time at the cross, and it changed them forever. So let's read first in Galatians chapter 5. And we'll read toward the end of the chapter. Actually, we'll read in the middle of the chapter. I want to pick the context up. I say then, verse 16, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. We all are aware of these two influences and forces within us. If we're saved, we have a new creation that desires to do God's will and loves the Lord. We have a wonderful, impotent, uh, sorry, omnipotent, scratch impotent, omnipotent ally living in us, the Holy Spirit of God. But on the other side of the fence, we have the flesh. And these are at loggerheads with each other. They're eternally struggling against each other. And there are, two, there are two forces that we are responsible to join in the fray and tilt the balance toward the spirit, tilt the balance toward obeying God and to give no provision to the flesh. And we're going to talk about how maybe that can work in the Christian life, and I want to make it practical today. But that's the basic struggle that's being determined here. And then we determine that these two influences within us, the flesh and the spirit, both produce Results. One of them can be called fruit. Fruit's lovely, it's nice, it's beautiful, it's helpful. The other can't be called fruit. We can at best describe it as works, widgets, things that come out of the machine. And these are the works of the flesh, right? So we'll read that awful list just briefly because it's scripture. No, the works of the flesh are these, verse 19. Much of it begins with sexual immorality and uncleanness which is a particular weak point in the flesh of humans. But it includes much more than that, so we'll read the list. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. And as the list goes on, even if we took a little solace with number one or number two, we can't take much more solace than that. We realize that we're guilty Certainly in thought and indeed as well in action with many of these things, even though we're believers, to our shame. It says, of which I tell you beforehand, the middle of 21, just as I also told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that a person who commits these is not saved, or even a person who commits them more than once is not saved. What it does mean is that a person who is truly born again will hate these sins as much as they love them and will not have a life characterized by these, but because of the work of the Spirit of God and the sanctification that proceeds at least at some pace in everyone 
their lives will not be marked from A to, I was going to say A to Z, A to Z, by this sort of behavior. But in great contrast to that, the fruit of the Spirit, another way to illustrate that, by the way, is that uh, the Christian can do many things that we might catch in snapshots. And they might be devastating snapshots. And they might be humiliating and deeply embarrassing snapshots. But a Christian cannot do the same thing in video. All right? So in other words, the whole story, if you listen to it or watch it from front to back, is not that kind of behavior in a true believer. But we all admit there are times when we wish no one was taking any sort of pictures, video or otherwise, right? Because we are not being true to the calling that we have. And we want to talk about how that can be improved in the days to come. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Now, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. There's our word crucify. And I want to talk about this verse for the first part of the meeting. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The purpose of this meeting is to say, what is the practical use of this? Now, I get that phrase from the Puritans. The Puritans, for all their scholarship, were very good at the end of their writings to say, now, what is the practical use of this? In more modern parlance, we could say, this is the so what meeting. And this is the biggest so what you'll ever meet in life. The so what of the cross. Because it has huge, enormous implications for every believer. It absolutely should dominate us and our lives because of its enormity. Because of the enormity of the love that was shown there. And because of the great obligation we have to the one who died there. He, of course, on that cross was our substitute. And at the end of his three hours of suffering, he said, finished. We'll talk about that a little bit this evening. That means a debt had been paid, and he, of course, was the only one who could pay it. He willingly did that. He paid that debt and was able to say, to stamp upon it, finished forever. And so as our substitute, he bore our punishment. But there's more. There's another cry he made from the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What was he doing there? He had already announced that the payment for sin had been fully satisfied. There was another part of the work of Christ, not the substitutionary part, the representative part. He now must die. And in dying, we died with him. We're going to read that. We discussed it yesterday, but we're going to talk about the practical meaning of it today. And so as our substitute, he suffers and pays the price. As our representative, he dies and is buried and gloriously rises again. Implications for this, of this to us, I want to break down in two ways in the two passages in Galatians I want to consider. The first is personal holiness, personal separation in our lives to the Lord, personal devotion to him. The second is a very closely related idea. It's still really the general topic of sanctification, but now it's not separation from sin in my life so much as separation from the world. All right? If we think about the process of sanctification, it is a separation. Now, just to be clear, and again, to help maybe the younger people, there are two terms that we often want to distinguish but cannot separate. We can distinguish them, but we can't divide them in the sense of having one without the other. And those are justification, 
and sanctification. Justification is God's declaration that we are righteous based on the work of Christ. God does it. He does it once. We receive it. It happens in an instant. And we have been justified freely forever. You cannot be more justified than you are today, nor could you be less justified than you are today. You were either justified or you were not justified. It is something that happened once and will never be repeated. It is eternally valid. And it's the reason we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 5, for example, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. However, there's a second process, and this is the subject of Romans you know, 12, 5, 12 and on into chapter 6, which is where we're going to spend some time today. And that's a process called, another big word, sanctification. Now, the word sanctify and the word holy, sanctimonious, saint, uh, what other words can I come up with? These are all this, these are two different English word groups, right? The Anglo-Saxon holy, holiness, right? And the Latin-derived sanctification, saint, right? So these, these words, don't confuse them. They are the same thing. They're referring to what we might call generally holiness. Now, again, just a little, little primer on holiness here. What is holiness? It is otherness. It is separation. You see what? what? I'll explain what I mean. God is holy in one sense. He's holy in what we call an ontological sense, which that means, what that means is he's other than his creation. He's not part of the creation. He's not a contingent being. He is different. He is categorically different, a different category. He's to be separated in our understanding of reality from his creation. He, of course, made the creation. In that sense, he's holy in his being. But he's also holy in that he is ethically holy, that his standards, which he himself, of course, uh, lives by, if I can put it that way, you know, basically God's rules are not arbitrary. They are just a description of his own holy, ethical, moral character. He's holy in that sense. And we can't be holy like God in the first sense. We can't be other than creation and be a transcendent being. But we sure can be holy in the second sense like God, that is to be separated from evil, to be separated from what is inferior, to, se to be separated from what is unworthy. That kind of holiness. So Peter says, be ye holy. God says, Peter quotes, be holy because I'm holy. And that's really what he's talking about. Now, holiness itself needs to be divided. So if we can bifurcate holiness in God's sense from being a transcendent being and also being a moral being, and we grab the moral handle here and then we bring that over to humanity, now we understand that there are two branches in this. There's a positive one and a negative one. The positive one is to be devoted, sold out, honed in on God and on what is right and what is worthy. The other is to be separate from sin, from what is inferior or unworthy. And to make sure that that divide exists in our life so that we are spending our time on the holiness of God and loving him and staying away from defilement, which takes us away from him. Now, this process of sanctification does not happen in an instant. Admittedly, just to be for the record, there is such a thing as positional sanctification because, in a sense, God made us saints when we were saved and set us apart for heaven. We're, we're clear on that. But that's not our subject at the moment. What we're talking about now is a practical issue. Some people call it progressive sanctification. And here it did not happen in an instant. It is a process that began at salvation and will go right to the point of our exiting this earth. 
During that time, we are supposed to be getting better at it. That's the first checkup as we look at ourselves today. How much better are we than we were a few years ago at this idea of progressive holiness in our lives? Well, this is a cooperative effort. We find out that indeed we could not do this on our own. We need the grace of God. We need the spirit of God. We need the word of God. All the basics of Christianity, we need them on a daily basis in order for sanctification to, pro to progress. And yet, despite God giving us the power, indeed even giving us the motivation for this, he's not going to do it all by himself. He's going to allow us to participate and inviting us to participate. See, the issue with this, and we're going to now tease this out a little bit more, is that where justification is complete, sanctification is not complete because redemption is not complete. You say, well, run that by me again. Well, I will. If God was to perfectly redeem us, spirit, soul, and body, we would be ready for heaven, we would be sinless beings, we would be holy, we would be unable to sin as Christ himself is, and we would be ready, we would be packaged and ready for heaven. All of us. That would imply a resurrection, wouldn't it? And God has chosen not to do that. And you say, well, I sure wish he had, because I don't like the struggle that this life entails. All these difficulties I have with sin in my flesh, and the lure of the world, and all the things I know I shouldn't be doing that I don't want to do, and I do want to do at the same time. And, and why did he leave me in this predicament? God left us in what we might call a predicament in order that we might grow, yes, that we might develop as people, but ultimately it is because he wants to give us the opportunity to glorify him. You see, if I am able to say yes to sin, I must also be able to say no to it. If I'm able to do something that is righteous and choose to do it, I suppose I could have chosen otherwise and decided not to do it. So I have this choice. And this is a great way to view temptation, by the way, because temptation, you always want to uh, you know, think of it as a negative thing. It's actually a beautiful opportunity because what God is presenting you with is a choice. Life is full of decisions and choices. If I take God's path, I have said no to something that God has given me the power to say no to. And by doing that, even though it was not fun at the moment and seemed to be awfully, um, you know, I, I thought I was depriving myself and I thought it wasn't going to be good and I thought it would have been better to do the bad thing, but I've decided, no, I'm going to do it God's way. I'm going to go with the right option. Footnote. When you do that, you get real joy. See, the other is a total delusion. It's a complete lie, right? We all know that. We're, we're experienced here, right? We're, we get this. The problem is we're slow learners, and sometimes we don't progress as far as we ought to. Every trial is an opportunity to say yes to God. Every temptation is an opportunity to do the right thing. You could have done otherwise. Sometimes we do. But when we obey the Lord, we glorify him in a way that we could not have done had we been fully redeemed and shipped right to heaven at the moment of salvation. There are purposes in this life. And it was not to make us miserable, it's to make us triumphant. It's to make us joyful. As long as we are trained in righteousness and learn some of the basic, I think, truths that help us steer through this difficulty. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time on those truths. Now, 
Let us talk about what this verse actually means that we read here. And those that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's a little bit strange. First of all, we expect to hear that we have been crucified with Christ. We've met that in chapter 2, and we get that again in chapter 6 of Romans. So this looks like we're active here, like we're doing the crucifying. That's strange. Then it, you may expect to say we, the, the body or something like that has been crucified. You know, We were crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. Now it's talking about crucifying flesh. And this seems very strange to us. It is strange. This is the only place in the New Testament that talks about talks in this language. What this means, and it comes back to the understanding of what crucifixion actually is. It is an execution. It is a complete repudiation. It is a complete rejection of something or someone. So if I crucify the flesh in my life, I repudiate it. I reject it. I call it dead because God calls it dead. I separate myself from it. I say no to it. That's what crucifying the flesh means in this context. Now, the reason we can do that is because we have been crucified with Christ. And here, let's just talk about the truth of Romans chapter 6 for a few minutes before we move on to the great 6th chapter of Galatians and beyond. And maybe uh, we will actually take the time to read a couple of key readings in Romans 6, which is really very closely allied to some of the Galatian readings we've done. Paul says, what shall we say then in verse number one? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And now I want you, we're going to talk about how this chapter divides. Drop all the way down to chapter, verse 15. We get this what then again? What shall we say then? Another question. Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Back to the first verse. How does he answer it? At the beginning of the second verse? Certainly not. God forbid. Meganita. However you want to pronounce that. Or, or translate that. It's the strongest possible negation in Greek. No way. No way. Now go drop down to verse 15. 15b. Same expression. Certainly not. So the way this chapter is constructed is this. There are two opponents, if you will, who are voicing objections to the gospel of grace and of liberty. They ask two questions. Paul gives two answers. He gives the short answer and the long answer. The short answer is, God forbid. And the long answer is why, God forbid, right? He explains exactly why. In the explanation, he will give us some things that we need to know. And then he will come through with some imperatives and say, look, because of the things you know or ought to know or now know, this is what you need to do. So we have an opponent, we might call it uh, uh, an, op an opponent of voicing an objection. We're going to talk about what those objections mean. Then Paul's answer, and then Paul's argument. And then Paul's appeal. Okay, so let's see how this works. The first question is this. It's very germane to our discussion, obviously. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And this question, we might understand that in sin means continue to live in sin. The kind of videotape I was talking about earlier, continue. Here's the argument. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Okay, well, that's a great truth. But see, the carnal mind, uh, the non-spiritual mind, will look at that and say, oh, this looks like I found a giant loophole. Because it says where sin abounds, grace abounds. 
Grace abounding is a good thing. God's a God of grace. The more grace he shows, the greater his glory. So maybe it doesn't matter if I behave myself. Maybe I should sin. Maybe I should sin more even so that God would respond with more and more grace and ultimately he would be glorified and I would get away with everything. And uh, Paul says, God forbid. Um, He's first of all saying, you're betraying the fact that you're not a believer by that kind of thinking because his opponents are not believers. They believe in their own self-righteousness, their legalism and whatever. Paul is saying, look, there's an answer to this. The answer is this. You died to sin. When you died on the cross, you were co-crucified with Christ. Sin and you were separated. You do not any longer have to serve sin. More than that, you were risen with Christ and given a new nature so that you do not desire to multiply sin in your life. Regardless of whether it would cause God to produce more grace or not. And more than that, if you would go back to Grace 101, you would realize that grace never permits sin, never encourages sin. Grace is only and always the solution to sin. So he's going to work with these points. Now this is what you and I need to know. We think that we are not dead to sin at times, but we are. Now what does it mean to be dead to sin? Those who have been died, it says, are justified or freed from sin. You say, that doesn't really describe my situation too well because I don't feel like I'm free from sin. I still want to sin at times. Sin constantly tempts me and trips me up. But this is what it means. First of all, to have died to sin, we can say with great relief, means that we have paid the penalty for our sins in Christ. It does mean that. But it means more than that here because we already know that. It means that sin is now separated from me as a master. It is no longer my master. Now, if you don't know that, and sin tells you to do something, it comes knocking at your door and says, you must do this or you must do that, but you don't know that you actually don't have to obey it because you're no longer, it's, it's no longer your master, you might just obey it. The power of knowing things comes in here because Paul is telling us that we are separated from sin. We are dead to sin. Our old self, which could not help do anything but sin, died and was buried and left in the grave. The new I, still not fully redeemed, still encased in flesh, yes, but the real I has not only the desire, but now, thank God, the ability to say no to sin. Now, you can imagine yourself being a subject in a kingdom, and the king has you in his you know, his castle, and he is over you with a whip and telling you what to do, and you've got no choice. You've got to obey. But, of course, the gospel comes and breaks through the wall and pulls you out of that castle and brings you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. And now you no longer have the same master, and you no longer have to obey him. But, of course, that doesn't stop him from continuing to shout orders at you. And if you're naive enough to think that you're still in the old kingdom, you might just go ahead and obey them. Don't be so naive. Knowing this, the power of knowing. So there's very, it's very important in Romans 6 that we know these doctrines because they are emancipating. They really do set us free. But of course, knowing is just the beginning point. We need to get to the matter of our will, our decisions, right? And so he says, I want you to Reckon is the King James uh, version of the the word, and that's fine. I guess we can reckon things. Um, Let me take you to that. Actually, my new King James also says reckon. 
Verse number 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you consider that to be true, if you consider the truth that I just explained to you, that sin is no longer your master, you do not have to obey it, you have power in God to go in the right direction and to say no to iniquity. If you really know that and are willing to reckon it true in your lives, then here's what Paul says. It's now your choice. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't give your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Yield yourselves to God. Use your body and your body parts for God's glory. Your choice. It's up to you now. You know you can do it. You know you have the power. Now do it. And really, it's not that much more difficult than that, except it is always difficult in reality to make these things happen because the forces arrayed against us are very significant. How do you kill sin in your life? Is it really the matter of spending a lot of time dwelling on sin and on negative things? Is it really a matter of drumming up willpower? Is it really a matter of just getting a stronger Christian backbone? Or is it a little bit easier than that? I think it's actually easier than that. I told you separation goes in two directions. If you want to be separate from sin, don't dwell on sin. Dwell on Christ. Nature abhors a vacuum. Spiritual minds abhor vacuums as well. The secret of Christian life is devotion to him. It's spending time with him. To our subject today, it's spending time at the foot of the cross. It's reading his word and having a conversation with him. It's praying. It's being with Christian people. It's being under Christian teaching. It's spending time in all the great positive things of our faith. Those are the things that make this doable. But at the same time, we must remember that when temptation comes calling and we are in a, what we might call a weak moment, we have an opportunity to say yes to God. We have the power to say no to sin. We are no longer under that, to, that master. And we can just thumb our nose at the devil and at sin, yelling orders across the fence into a new kingdom where we now live, where they have no jurisdiction. That's the first part of Romans 6, as much as we can spend time on that. <coughs> and then he rewinds the tape, and he says, we're going to do this all over again. I have another question. I'm going to answer it with God forbid again, and then I'm going to tell you some more. The second objection is this. Watch then. Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Again, this is a similar concept, but a little bit different. He's saying, we are no longer under law. We are under grace. We will never have to face the penalty of our sin. Our sin has been satisfied in our substitute. Therefore, no matter what we do, no matter how much evil we might generate in our Christian lives, it's all been forgiven ahead of time. So what's the deal? We might as well just go ahead and sin. Now, this is repulsive to a, you know, the Christian mind. We're saying that doesn't sound right at all. I, even in my bad times, I don't think like that. But remember, this is an unbeliever who's objecting to the gospel of free grace. And Paul is showing that, no, the gospel really does work. It works not because we bring your laws and your religion in here to get these people to shape up. It works because the people I'm talking about who have this gospel and this grace are different than you. Because they've been saved and their new creations in Christ and their desires and their power is entirely different from what you experience in your unconverted 
self-state. And so he's, you have to bring yourself back to your old unsaved days if you want to think like these opponents. But Paul then says, look, <clears throat> do you not know that the one you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the slaves to whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So in this way, he's answering the question thus. Two masters. I'll give you the old lineup, right? Romans 5, two men, Christ and Adam. Romans 6, two masters, sin, righteousness, or if you will, the devil and God. Romans 7, two marriages, married to the law, married to Christ. Romans 8, two minds, the mind of the spirit and the mind of the flesh. Those are all M's. They're very easy. And I don't like alliteration, but as a matter of fact, that works so well I can't resist. So we're in the two masters here. And this is the reality that grips us at the end of the chapter. You and I are contingent beings. We are going to serve someone. We might think we're free and we don't have to serve anyone, but then what we're actually doing is serving sin. Because we're built to serve. That's what contingent beings do. God doesn't serve in that way, although Christ is a servant. But rather, we made for him and for his pleasure must serve. And the question is, whom will you serve? This really gets us back to the same question we were grappling with earlier, that the, the, the temptation to sin and the lure of the flesh are going to be one choice that is always in front of us and always available, but we are now pointing ourselves to the other choice, which is to say yes to our gentle, kind, master God. Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms here, you understand this analogy breaks down a little bit because sin has a whip. Sin is wicked. Sin is cruel. Sin is a terrible tyrant. Sin treats us as chattel. We're property to the devil. He buys and sells us. But God, he's the kindest slave master you'll ever meet. He loves you. He gives you tasks that are joyous. And he cares for you. But don't miss the underlying fact that he's still your master. So really, again, Christian obedience comes down to the simple point that we are obligated by the cross to obey God. There's nothing wrong with obedience. A lot of people say, well, that's legalistic if you teach obedience. They say the Bible's not a book of rules. The Bible's not a book of do's and don'ts. I don't know what Bible they're reading. It's not my Bible. My Bible's full of do's and don'ts. The critical thing is that we have, we talked about it yesterday, the desire and the ability in our hearts to pursue the will of God and to do it. But at the end of the day, obedience isn't the optional thing. Obedience is what God requires. In fact, obedience is the proof that we actually love him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You say, I love you, but I don't want to keep your commandments. God says, then you don't love me. You say, oh, I do love you. No, you don't. Because you're going to show your obligation to Christ and your fealty and loyalty to him and his cross by obeying him from the heart. From the heart. That's all the time we want to spend on that very important section. I hope that's been useful just to walk through that material again. I want to talk now about Galatians chapter 6. So let's return to that section. And 
We'll read this well-known final reference to the cross in Galatians chapter 6. As many as desire to make a good showing, this is verse 12, in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For even those, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Again, this is the background. We've talked about these false teachers and their adding works to faith. But here's the concluding point. Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I want to spend a few moments talking about a different aspect of sanctification, not separation from sin in my life, not saying no to God in personal decisions, saying yes, excuse me to God in personal decisions, saying no to the devil and to sin. These are basic things. They're with us every day. But just as vital in Christian life is to say no to the world. As a matter of fact, these two are so closely connected to each other because you can't really live a sanctified life and have personal holiness if you're all wrapped up in the world. That's like playing with matches in uh, the middle of a uh, you know, flowing gasoline station. You're asking for trouble. It's just basic you know, common sense that in order to not get burned, you want to stay away from playing with fire in the, in the presence of open containers of gasoline, right? So the world's full of gasoline. It's full of dry fuel. It's full of things that can explode in your face. So why spend your time there? That's a practical reason. But there's a moral reason as well. We have no right to spend time in that world because that world crucified our Savior. The word stauros, which means a cross, in generally translated that way in the New Testament, originally meant a stake. We talked about this yesterday. And crucifixions occurred in all manners and all forms. The uh, crux compacta, they call it in Latin, which is the two-piece cross with the cross member carried to the cross and then suspended up on the upright stake. That's most likely what the Lord was crucified on. In the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the cross looked like. But originally, especially before the time of Christ in the early days of the Roman Empire, typically it was a stake. And sometimes these stakes were put next to each other and created a palisade. In fact, the word can actually mean a fence. That is a fence, like a barbed wire fence or something like that. And not an offense. Fence, you got me? All right, so why, why do I bring that up? Because, because that, that double meaning might have been in the mind of someone reading this language. And they might have thought of it this way. The cross of Christ has fenced me off from the world. And I think that's a very good picture. You see, if you come to the cross for salvation and then you return to the world, you'll need to pass by that cross again. And that cross is the world's verdict of your Savior. I said yesterday, I'll repeat it again, the death of Christ in a general sense, we think of how that fits us for heaven. But when the word cross comes in or crucified, then we get the stark reality that this is what finishes me with the world. Because the world said to Christ, we hate you, we want you out, we want to get rid of you, we want never to see you again, we want to kill you, we want to execute you, we want to destroy you, we're going to give you a cross. That's what the world did to Christ. And that world has not changed its verdict at all. 
Anytime you bring in religion in a general kind of feel-good way, they're okay with that. You bring in the cross and you get the offense of the cross immediately. Now, if they said that to your Savior, how can you, and how can I align myself with a world that said all those horrible things about the Lord Jesus Christ? The cross finishes me with the world. I have no right to go back there. Not only is it a stupid place for me to be, it's an immoral position for me to take. Now, that sounds great. You know, we can talk in all these platitudes. Now, the question is, where does the rubber meet the road in that? What is the world? And how do I stay away from it, separate from it? Did not Christ say that you are in the world? Yes, he did, but he said you're not of it. There's a big difference. We talked about this yesterday. I won't repeat that material except to say this, that the world has different components to it. There are things in the minds of people who are in the world that we need to be aware of. There are things they do with their bodies. There are things they do socially. There are things they do economically. There are things they do spiritually. And they do them in a worldly way that is different from the Christian perspective. So we need to just tease this out a little bit. He was in the world. The world was made by him. And the world knew him not. As you know, that great verse from John chapter 1 uses world in three slightly different meanings, or actually quite different meanings. He was in the world, that is society. The world, the planet, the entire cosmos, was made by him. And the world of men did not know him. And implied in that is not only that they did not know him, but they did not want to know him. It's that third world we're talking about. It's the organization of people on this planet who, as a group, individuals accepted to be sure, but as a group, are in opposition to God and his gospel. Now, they have things they want to pursue. They have agendas. And sometimes we have to pursue the same things. We just have to ask ourselves, based on the cross and on the radical discipleship I want to talk about now, do I really have the option to do even the neutral things that the world is all interested in? They want to build, you know, we, we can start talking about houses, cars, cottages, vacations, and all the things that, that we have the right to, to some extent. Do we have the, I mean, well, you make your own call on that. I think we maybe do some of that stuff more than we should. It's a matter of priority. But I'm saying even the neutral, the good things that the world thinks are so important that they spend all their time at, we have to ask in the shadow of the cross, really, is that right for me to do that? Because Christ said, take up your cross daily and follow me. He said to the rich young ruler, take up your cross and follow me. And the rich young ruler wouldn't do it. And the question is, will you or will I? What is taking up your cross? It's very similar to the concept we have here, which is why I want to talk about it now. When we take up the cross... We say that we are heading to death. We say that we have been given the same verdict by the world that they gave to Christ. It means that we're ready to pay any price. It means that we are into radical discipleship. It means that we take up the words of, for example, C.T. Studd. As you know, he was a great cricket player when cricket was a big thing and was the heir of a tremendous fortune in England but went and spent his life preaching the gospel in India and C.T. Studd said, if Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice I make for him can be too much. 
That's the attitude of one who takes up his cross. Taking up your cross is not your mother-in-law. Taking up your cross is not having to do the dishes. That's trivial. That's, that's bad exegesis. Okay. That's, that's, the world has to deal with that too, right? Taking up your cross is distinctively Christian things that are the badge of a person who has been saved and separated from the world. And they see that mark on you, and they identify you by your behavior as a Christian, by your words as a Christian. And they hate you. They hated Christ, and they hate you. Now, it's a strong word, but I'm using the Bible word. Now, thank God, through our testimony and through our lives, we lure people out of the world that the Spirit of God is giving a hunger for righteousness and for salvation. But that whole system, despite the leaks and the people that escape out of it, that system won't change. It hates us. So the question is, why do we think, why do we live, why do we even perceive that it loves us? It's because we've gotten too close to it. Now the world, <clears throat> I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a, an area where I think it's so easy to start to set down rules and to get, and say, this is what I do and this is what you should do and I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to make some general points. Do you think Hollywood is the world? You say no, because in the old days, people didn't watch movies, but now we do, and then, therefore, we've changed our perspective on that, so it wouldn't be right to say that Hollywood is the world, because there might be some good movies that we would like to watch. Well, I ask you this. If Hollywood is not the world, what is? Do you think the educational system is the world? Uh, I went to a liberal arts college and got, I think, a good education, plugging my nose much of the way. I'm not so sure people can go to a university anymore and get anything but brainwashed. Where is the legitimate search for truth? It's not there. It's all about the agenda of the world to change you and to brainwash you. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go to school. If God calls you to do that, do it. But recognize you're walking right into an area that is world, 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 world. Okay? A very, very dangerous place to be. Make sure you've got Christian fortification. The business world. We're all business people at one level or another, and we ought to be industrious. But if we get caught up with the pursuit of money and materialism, and that's what matters to us. We've left the cross on the ground. We've ceased to carry it. And we become like the world. That is profoundly wrong because it shows that we have absolutely no gratitude in our hearts for what Christ did on that cross for us. Now, this may almost take uh, the negative kind of tone of a ministry that's telling you you shouldn't be doing things and you shouldn't be going places and you shouldn't be watching things. Um, I think some things need to be said. You need to make, make these judgments for yourself. I'm really into this as a positive thing in my own life, and I think you should think of it this way as well. There are so many better things that you could be occupied with, so many wonderful things. You see, all the things that the world does even give you, you'll lose. Again, to quote another great um, person from this century, Jim Elliot, right? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. You invest in God, in spiritual things, in heaven, in people, in relationships, in the knowledge of the word, in time, in prayer, and you are living in heaven ahead of heaven. Those are the things that bring joy. You say, no, they don't. Yes, they do. You say, no, they don't. Yes, they do. We could argue all day about this. The, the, the point is that there is a part of you that says this can't be right. This is too simple. That really doesn't sound fun. And that's the flesh, that selfishness, that perpendicular pronoun that characterizes us. I, I, I. It needs to be judged. It needs to be crucified. Crucify. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its desires and lusts. In the next the last few minutes, as we think about these radical ideas, and they are radical, they go right down to the root, right? That's what radical means of Christianity. I want to think about the lives of two men that were radically changed by the cross. As we know, the only brave people at the cross were women, which isn't a surprise to me. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus, her sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene, and a somewhat reluctant John who snuck in at the end. There were also two other men who had been disciples of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. They were both Sanhedrin members. They were both wealthy men. Joseph, we know, was wealthy for sure, but Nicodemus as the teacher in Israel, the great rabbi in Israel, would certainly have had a very prominent social place as well. These men had not consented to the counsel indeed of them, as the King James tells us. They had not agreed to the verdict about Christ and had not consented to the crucifixion. They largely probably were absent. But now Christ has made that great cry. Christ has breathed his last. He has dismissed his spirit as one who has full authority over it. He has decided to put his head down on his chest and then die in that order. No one else dies like that. Everyone else slumps over after they die. He chose to put his head down in repose first. And then he said, it is time and dismisses his spirit. And now he's dead. And he's a corpse. And he's a full-grown man hanging on a cross. And the purpose of his executioners would have been to let him stay there for carrion or to rot in the sun or to be thrown into an ash heap or burned in the valley of Gehinnom or the, the valley of the Kidron Valley. So God's had other designs, of course. He was with the rich in his death. It was very important that the body of Christ be properly interred in order for the proofs of the resurrection to be valid. If he had been burned, God could have raised him some, you know, up from the dead, but it would not have been possible to prove it. So that was the practical reason why these men had to do what they did. But that's not my interest right now. I want you to imagine what it would be like to put your wealth behind you, realizing that you would never be wealthy again, to put your job behind you, realizing you would be unemployable from this time forward, to put your reputation on the line and realize you would be despised by all the nation from then on, to say goodbye to all that was precious to you and all that was valuable by going to that cross and identifying yourself with that dead Christ. That's what they did. They went up, think about the techniques Perhaps the soldiers helped them get the cross beam down. <clears throat> they would have pulled the spikes out. 
and they had linen shrouding, and they had spices, and they're carrying a 175-foot-pound man off to a virgin tomb. All their hopes gone up in dust and ashes. But because of their respect for him, they did it anyway. They took him to the grave, and they put him in there and slid the stone over the entrance and walked away. <clears throat> they had just lost everything by being identified. Why would they do that? I think the reason John puts that story right where he does is it's a compelling argument that they were changed forever by spending time at the foot of the cross and watching Christ die for their sins. That's a secret for you and me. Don't ever get far away from the cross. One of the wonderful things about the remembrance meeting every Lord's Day is we get back to the foot of the cross. And people who don't have that in their particular religious program, we don't think that's important. I think it's important. I think it's important from God's perspective to get the worship that he deserves. I think it's important from my point of view because that keeps me right at the foot of that cross. And I would like to think that because of the time spent there, I could have courage. This is the word talmao in Greek. It comes into the story in John 19. They took courage and they went and asked the body from Pilate. They didn't have courage before. They were secret disciples. But now they have guts. Why? Because they've spent time at that cross. We must not get away from it. We must remember that it was there that Christ gave his all for us. And we must commit ourselves on a personal level to saying no to the sins that nailed him there. And as well to say no to the world that nailed him there. And to say, look, by that cross the world is fenced off to me and I to the world. That is the very least we can do. The very least. But it is, in fact, a glorious prospect to be able to be on the side of Christ. It's not the popular position, but with God it means everything. Remember when Moses came to the camp and he shouts into the camp, Who is on the Lord's side? And the sons of Levi rallied to him. God says now, Who is on the Lord's side? He's asking us to come out from that world and to be loyal forever to the Lord Jesus Christ. Any of these thoughts just about <clears throat> our moral obligation as a result of Calvary be a help to us as we consider our lives from this point forward.